You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I had a teacher named Miss Gladys Young, and Miss Gladys was very uh, fun to be around. Uh, she was a dairy farmer's wife. Uh, I thought it was the coolest thing ever, being around cows all day. Um, but she would let us act out the stories. And so she would tell the story, and we would get to act it out as kids. And I used to love when she would pick me to be Jonah. And there would be a table, and the table was always the whale. And you would crawl underneath the table, and she would read the story uh, and when she would get to that part where the, the fish spits Jonah out of its mouth, I mean, I couldn't wait because that was my big moment. Being the six-year-old I was, and I did it with pizzazz and flair. And man, I'd come out of there and I'd do a few flips and I'd roll around. And I mean, I was a great Jonah. And, but I remember that from Miss Gladys teaching us the story of Jonah. So this morning, I want to invite you to the book of Jonah. So go ahead and turn there. A little bit difficult of a, a book to find. Usually I can kind of get to Psalms and Proverbs, and then if you just start heading east, you'll eventually get there through all the minor prophets looking for the book of Jonah. But also, Mark, Matthew chapter 12. A little easier to find first of the New Testament. But I want you to mark those two passages today. So as you're finding that spot in Jonah, let me give you just a little bit of information about him. So Jonah... One of God's prophets. He's one of the minor 12 prophets that we have in the Old Testament. Of all the prophets, Jesus references four. Elijah, the guy that jumped into heaven. Elisha and his shawl. Uh, Isaiah. And he even mentions, Jesus mentions, Jonah. But of all the prophets we have, Jonah is the only one that runs from God. So we've been looking at this series of how do we see Jesus? Is he just a New Testament person or is Jesus actually also in the Old Testament? We've been looking at different people and how they have been glimpses or foreshadows of the Messiah to come. Were they Messiah? No, but we've seen through different people's lives how they have similarities to Jesus. Jonah is no exception. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus was the ultimate voice of God in that way. Jonah slept through a storm. Jesus slept through a storm. Jonah offered himself up to be thrown overboard. Jesus offered himself up on the cross. Through Jonah's life, the sailors, if you remember the story, and the people of Nineveh were saved. Through Jesus, through Jesus' life, anyone who looks to him can find salvation. Jonah going to spend three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus laid in the belly of the grave for three days. But before we jump into the book of Jonah, I want to set a groundwork for what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this story a little bit differently. Of all the ones that we have been studying, I think I have learned the most, the kind of new information to me looking at the book of Jonah. But I want to set it up this way. What do you love that you would do anything to protect? What do you love so much that you would do anything 
to protect? Or what person or thing or idea do you, tra- you cherish in such a way that you would sacrifice almost anything for? What about your own person? What about you, you would say, is so important to you that, man, you will fight with everything you have to hold on to it? Well, you can kind of see what I'm talking about is the idea of idols. And I know you're thinking, wait, I thought we were talking about Jonah. Well, we are. John Calvin once said that we as humans are idol factories, that we are great at making idols. In my life, I have noticed two kind of categories of idols. One, I would put in the category, I'd call them worthless, worthless idols, Things that I have chased or, or people I have put my identity in or ideas that have really become all-consuming. And I get to the place that I realize, man, there is no satisfaction at or, or that person has let me down or that idea has just fallen through. And those are just worthless idols. But there's another category that is much bigger. And for me, it's much harder. It's much more dangerous. And it's the idea of taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing, or taking a good thing and making it a God thing. You know, we could put our religious activities, our careers, our looks, our health, our families, our financial status, our leisure activities, our hobbies. We can take those things and make them the most important thing in our lives. You know, we're good at taking good things and putting them in the center of our lives. You know, I've often thought too, but doesn't Scripture say, you know, love your wife as Christ loved the church, and doesn't He command me to love my children and all those things? And I would say, yes. There are things we are to love, we're to passionately love, we are to pursue, and we are to protect. But what is the difference between taking a good thing that we're meant to love and to sacrifice for and all these things, but how are we meant to make sure that it doesn't become the ultimate thing? Or how can you tell if you have made a a person, a thing, or maybe even an idea, an idol? Well, I've got two tests for you. One, notice how you respond when this person, thing, or idea is threatened. You know, you may have a passion for a certain activity and you've made a plan and when that plan doesn't fall through, how do you respond? How do you react when that happens? The other test could be, what do you do or would you do anything to protect what you would think is a good thing? Family, leisure activities, uh, desires, your health, your financial status, would you do anything to protect that? Even if it meant disobedience to God. Man, my mind immediately goes back to Abraham and Isaac, the thing that was most precious to him, his son, because in that son meant blessing and and meant a lineage of people that God would bring blessing from his line, but God called him to put him on the altar. Well, the only thing that is deserving And actually, the only thing that can actually stand at the center of our lives is God Almighty. Nothing else, nothing else can survive at the center of your life. And in fact, it's not fair. It's not fair if it's your family. It's not fair to them. 
It's not fair to your career. It's not fair to your fun. It's not fair to anything to be at the center of your life because God has not created them or it to be at the center of your life. He is the only one that is to be at the center of that rightful place in our lives. But God knows what He's doing. God does things to show us what is really at the center of our lives. And you know what God often uses? At least he does in my life. He uses the idea of storms. Last weekend, our nation, uh, the world in fact, saw a, a natural event that, that set records. On the western uh, hemisphere, it was the most powerful hurricane, or in that area they call them uh, cyclone, or cyclones or uh, typhoons. It was the largest one that has ever hit the western hemisphere that was called Hurricane Patricia that hit land on the western side of Mexico last Friday night. It said it took only 30 hours for this tropical depression to hit a scale-topping Category 5 with winds of over 200 miles an hour. And that's just a picture of the, the different winds that created this hurricane. Look at this next one. It's a from space that you can see the eye of that hurricane and, and how far it reaches out. And then look at when it hit land. I mean, look how far that reaches all the way across the United States into Canada and, and how far to the south. That this was a massive storm. So storms like this should amaze us. They should really get our attention. And storms are not evil. That storm did exactly what it was designed to do. So today I want us to look at, to see how does God use storms against our idols. And I know what you're thinking, but I thought you were talking about Jonah. I see the storm, but what did idols have to do with Jonah? Well, let's go to Jonah. We're going to pick up in the very first chapter. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is how it reads. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out or preach against it, for their evil has come before me. So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of a northern kingdom along the eastern banks of the Tigris River. One of the most powerful cities at the time. It was fortified. It was a military City. This city had two walls that protected. In fact, the inner walls were 50 feet thick, 100 feet tall. It had 1,500 watchtowers around built into this wall. Some of them were over 200 feet tall. But it was also an evil city. It was a city that went after its own desires, that, that it only had one intention, and that was to fulfill itself. And Jonah is told to go and to preach against this city. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarsus. And he paid for the fare, and he went down into it to go with them, once again, to Tarsus, away from the presence of the Lord. Remember, we were talking last week about the presence of God and what that meant. And we see Jonah here heading in the total opposite direction. And he purchases a ticket on a boat to head trying to run 
from the presence of the Lord. But why would Jonah run? Well, it's not because he even fears for his own life. Well, I'll show you that in just a moment. And it isn't because he doesn't believe God. It isn't like God has told me to go and do this, and he's going, you know what, man, if I go to that city, man, they're just going to kill me on the spot, and, and they're not going to listen to you. This wasn't Jonah. This wasn't Jonah's idea at all. But we do see why Jonah ran in chapter 4. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 2. Let me show you why Jonah is running. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? And he says that this is why I made haste. This is why I was running, God, to Tarsus. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a great thing for God Almighty to be, that He would be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and even relenting from disaster. And he says, God, that's why I ran from when you told me. Now, why would Jonah run if that's who God is? Because he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Why would Jonah run the other way? And it's because of what's at the center of Jonah's life. And it's because of this idol that Jonah has. You see, Jonah was a Jew. A Jew spent their entire existence in and out of slavery. If it wasn't the Egyptians, it was the Babylonians. If it wasn't the Babylonians, it was the Chaldeans. If it wasn't Chaldeans, it was the Assyrians. And this is where we find Jonah thinking. Here's where Jonah is. Jonah is a proud Jew. I mean, he's the Lee Greenwood of the United States. I mean, he, he's proud to be an Israelite. And Jonah's proud of this. And Jonah wants to, Jonah believes if he takes this message of repentance, of God's about to bring his judgment to you, he knows, he believes that if he does that and they repent, God is going to turn away his wrath and something's going to happen. Jonah believes that if he takes this message of a coming judgment, and the only solution is to repent and to turn to God, that God will forgive them, and he will then turn back his wrath and judgment. And if that happens, Jonah believes that the Ninevites will then turn and take what is most precious to him. So God, if you go, if you send me there and I go and take your message and they turn back to you and you forgive them and you no longer destroy them, they're going to come and they are going to take my nation away. And so what's at the center of Jonah's life is Israel. And Jonah is willing to do anything he can to protect that idol of Israel. Now, is that a good thing? Absolutely. But he's making it an ultimate thing. He's making it a God thing. And that is what's at the center of Jonah's life. And he knows if I don't go there, the message doesn't go, and then God will destroy them, then I, then I've protected my nation. But God is gracious. And he's slow to anger. And Jonah knows because God has been gracious and merciful to him. But he just doesn't want God to extend mercy and grace to others who are threatening what is most precious to him. 
So let's see what God does. Turn back to chapter 1. Let's pick back up. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it reads this. And the Lord, so Jonah's in the boat, and he's sailing away from the presence of God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, a storm, and so that the ship was threatened to break up. And then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and they cried out to his God. Each individual God, they were crying out. They, I imagine they were trying to think of every God they can imagine. And they started hurling the cargo over, and that the ship would be made lighter. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Verse 6, So the captain came and he said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So God causes this wind and all of a sudden there's this massive storm and these sailors who do not know Jonah's God begin crying out to their gods, but nothing happens. So they take matters into their own hands and they start taking precious cargo, things that were worth valuable, that were worth money and valuable to them and they were taking it and it was no longer, my life is worth more than this cargo, therefore it goes. I'll do anything to save my life. And these men were frantic. But what is most precious to them, and this is why, what is most precious to them is being threatened, their lives. And they're willing to do anything they can to protect it. Their lives meant more to them than that cargo. So the cargo is sacrificed. But notice where Jonah is. Jonah's in the bottom of that ship, and he is asleep. Now, how could Jonah sleep through this storm? And it's not because he took some Ambien or anything like that. But he is able to go to sleep because what is most precious to him isn't being threatened. Remember what's most precious to him is, is, is Israel, meaning if I die in this storm, the message doesn't get there. Therefore, what I love the most is protected. So he is able to sleep because the thing that is at the center of his life is no longer being threatened. So let's see how much Jonah loves the thing at the center of his life. Look at verse 7. It says, and he said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come up upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us and what is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country and, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah is a God-fearing man, and he knows exactly who God is, the creator of the sea and the land. Jonah knows his facts about God, but God is not at the center of his life. You can know a lot of things about God. And he can still not be what is most precious to you. You can have a lot of facts, but he does not necessarily mean that he makes that is having him at the center of your lives. Because look at verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, 
Then he said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more uh, dangerous. And he said to them, Pick me up. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it because of me that this great tempest, this great storm has come upon you. So Jonah was willing to die for what was most important to him. Israel. Because he believes that if he dies, God's message dies with him, he is okay with it. He will do anything to protect what is at the center of his life. And on the surface, I mean, it seems that Jonah is being a selfless man, but in fact, he's doing everything he can to protect his idol. He's not doing it to save the sailors, he is doing it to save his own people. But I want you to notice the contrast to Jonah and the men on the ship. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, so he tells them, throw me overboard. These sailors, guess what they are? They are Gentiles. They are not Jews. These Gentiles, notice what they do. Jonah says, throw me overboard and this storm will stop. And it says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more temperous against them. Jonah did not care enough about the lives of Gentiles to warn them about God's coming judgment. But the Gentile sailors were willing to row to save Jonah's. Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people to be an example to the world. And here we find Gentiles being more compassionate upon an Israelite than an Israelite being compassionate upon a Gentile. But they give, they're rowing, but they finally give in. But I want you to see they're really brokenhearted. Look at verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They cry out to God to not let them be punished for what they were about to do. Verse 15. So they pick up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. So we can see that through Jonah's disobedience the sailor came to know the one true God. But you know that's not the end of the story. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So even in his hardened heart, even in his disobedience, even in his running away from God, even in his not caring for the sailors that were on this boat, God provides salvation for Jonah. In this act of grace, God has two purposes. One, God wants his message to be carried to Nineveh. And he gave it to Jonah. And so God's going to do what he needs to do to get Jonah to Nineveh. But second, God wants the idol in Jonah's life to be replaced with him. Jonah is swallowed by this fish. And it's in this fish that God provides Jonah with just enough room, with, with just enough air. And notice what Jonah does. Chapter 2, 
verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of this fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Shalol I cried, and you heard my voice, and you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded around me. All your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down into the lands whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols that forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to this Lord. So God uses the storm to cause Jonah to sink, and he recognizes this. And God wants Jonah to see who he really is. God is showing Jonah that he is not Lord of the beach in the storm. And so God used this storm to get Jonah's attention. The storm comes in the form of correction, in the form of judgment. But in the storm, God provides grace in a fish. It's in the belly of this fish that Jonah is given just enough air and just enough room to realize that he was made, that he has made a good thing, a God thing. And that's what he wants Jonah to see. He's given him just enough air and just enough space to get his attention so Jonah can see that he has made a good thing a God thing. And when you read through that prayer, you can see that Jonah sees his own need for grace. He says, I had no hope. You put me here and I was drowning. But he wants the Ninevites. He wants the Ninevites to still be beyond God's grace. He does not want them to be forgiven. This prayer sounds good until you get to where you see Jonah's response. Because what we just read, he says, salvation is from you. I needed you. I was drowning. But he said, those those who have vain idols, who forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice. So look at his response in chapter 3. God spits him out of the fish. He goes to Nineveh. Chapter 3, look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. So Jonah's greatest fear has now come true. And he says, they called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The most powerful man in this city has stripped himself of all of his clothes and is sitting in ashes over his sin. And by decree, the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out Almighty to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is at his hands. Everyone from the poor servant 
to the most powerful one in that city, hears God's message and repents. And man, you would think that Jonah should be soaring with excitement over this. But Jonah is found sitting on the hill, and he has a hard time with it. He goes up, and he's sitting on this hill, and here's why Jonah is struggling. Here's his question. Jonah knows the people of Nineveh. He knows their wickedness, and he is sitting up on the hill wondering, how could God forgive them? How could God forgive these people that are so wicked that I know are just going to come and to take my people back into captivity? How could God forgive and also be just? How could God allow them to live when God himself said the punishment for sin is death? And how could God do both? How can you forgive them when you said that you were going to punish them by death? Because he's saying, God, you can't have both. How could God extend grace to a group of people that were so deserving to be punished? Jonah is so distraught. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 3. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And at that moment, at that moment, Jonah's idol fully surfaces. When the thing that Jonah loves the most is threatened and is to be taken away, he does not see his life worth anything. And when he has lost that, all life is meaningless. And at that moment, his idol fully comes to the surface. Jonah could not see why God would do this. He did not trust God. Years later, you know what happens? Jonah's fear does come true. Did you know the Ninevites do raise up? And they do come back and they take Israel captive. I imagine if Jonah had still been alive, he'd have been saying, See, God, I told you this was going to happen. But because of this moment right here that we just read, because of their repentance, you know, when they were taken captive by the Assyrians, which was the Ninevites, they were treated with respect. And they were even encouraged to worship God Almighty. And God in his plan was using this so that one day these Assyrians, the Ninevites, would take his family into captivity to teach them that I am to be at the center of your lives. And God knew what he was doing all along. But Jonah could not trust God. What was at the center of his life was being threatened. You know, storms are natural. And they show us what we're building our lives on. They show us what we are using to find happiness and satisfaction and purpose and meaning. But we become idolaters just like Jonah when we take a good thing and make it a God thing. But you know what? There is hope. There was hope with Jonah in the storm when he was thrown overboard. There was even hope and grace when he took the the command to go to the Ninevites. But there is hope. You know, every time there's a storm in your life, There's love beneath the waves. Just like there was with Jonah. God uses storms not to punish us. God uses them to give us just enough air and and just enough room to examine our lives. To teach us, you know what, we're not in control. God uses storms to allow us to examine our lives to see what is truly at the center. And how can that be? How can these storms be used to help instead of destroy us? 
Because there was someone, it was thrown into another storm. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we see someone that was cast into a, a different storm. In fact, it was an ultimate storm. Matthew chapter 12, in two verses of chapter 40 and 41, we see a different Jonah. This is how it reads. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up as judgment with these generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and beyond something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jonah was thrown into the water and not into God's wrath, because Jesus was cast into the wrath of God. Jesus went into that storm that was coming for Jonah. And that's how this storm was not meant to destroy him. It was meant to get his attention. But Jonah was blinded by his own idol to the fact that God's grace can be for anyone, including you and I. Jesus was cast into the storm of God's wrath so that your storms are not God's judgment. The reason there is love and forgiveness in the storms that we go through it's that there was not love and forgiveness in the storm that he sent his son through. And that is how Jesus is a better Jonah. You know, we will have storms, but they are for our good because they're full of love and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great morning. Thank you for a great morning of being able to come together as your church with fellow believers to sing truth to each other, to extend that right hand of fellowship, to be around people that, that we love and love us and love you. And we thank you for a day that we can come and to worship without fear. And Father, the, the thought that I pray we take with us today is this, is that there was one day a storm coming. In fact, there is a storm coming. And it is the storm that you will send that will punish all sin. And that storm will destroy sin forever. And Father, there will be people, sadly, that hope is right there. The answer is right there in your son that they will refuse and they will run from you. Father, I pray that we would be burdened for people. Unlike Jonah, that we would be willing to take your message to anyone that has not heard. But Father, there was a storm coming for all of us. But you sent someone into that storm for us. You sent your son, Jesus, that went to the cross, that endured incredible punishment and shame, that paid the full price of your wrath, that he was cast into the storm that was coming for us. But because of your son, that storm that was coming has been satisfied. And so now the storms that we may endure are there for our good. They're meant to show us the things in our lives that we have taken as good things and made them God things. And you're giving us just enough air and just enough room to examine our lives that we could have you at the center of our lives. So, Father, it is in your Son that was thrown into that ultimate storm for us that we can pray in His name.
thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.